Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is November 23rd, 2017, and this is episode 63. Politicos is a podcast that explores what's happening in British Columbia and across the country. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where we're at Politicos Pod, and support the show at patreon.com slash I'm Scott. And I'm Ian. Today, we're going to be talking about housing, of course, and the Canadian TV brackets, which is a nice little break. And we have Justin McElroy on the show in a bit. But first, as always, we have to thank our premier sponsor, Lindsay Teds, for helping make this show possible. Our first segment, Everyone's Got a Housing Plan. Scott, there's two big housing plans that released in the past 24 hours, and you almost read them. (laughs) Yeah, so both the federal government put out what was branded as the first ever national housing strategy. Which it's not. But that's okay. The other one, last one was done by Trudeau Sr., so you can't expect current Trudeau to know that. And the other thing was the city of Vancouver released the next phase of their housing reset uh, report and process to implement the new policies. And yeah, they basically got released back to back. The feds put theirs out Wednesday, which was also National Housing Day. And well, the city followed it up today. So the federal government's plan is headlined with this housing is now a right in Canada. And they're also highlighting the fact that the UN has pointed out when you say housing is a right, it doesn't mean you actually have to make it a right. You don't have to guarantee that everyone gets a house. You just have to try a little harder. Which is probably a good thing because it's not always a good idea to take good policy ideas and elevate them to the status of rights, particularly when it comes to rivalrous goods, which, you know, if you have one, it goes to, you know, one person and you can't necessarily split a muscle. So for stuff where there's, you know, finite resources that have to go into it and other stuff like that, yeah, making it a right has issues surrounding it. I guess it's more of an ambition, a dream, a goal. And in that case, I think I am happy to see it framed that way overall the plan is simultaneously like ambitious because we haven't had anything for like 20 years since Kretchen and the austerity years of the early 90s killed our last housing well I guess it wasn't a housing strategy because this is our first one but it's also much smaller than the Pierre Trudeau one so in the period of 1973 to 1993 I guess 600,000 homes were built under the National Housing Plan versus this one is talking about building 100,000 new affordable units and repairing 300,000. The other commitments in there, Trudeau wants to see chronic homelessness cut by 50%, but by 2026, so nine years to get through that, he wants to protect 385,000 homes from losing their affordable home. And he wants to give a $2,500 benefit to 300,000 households through something called a Canada Housing Benefit that is to be figured out. But there's $4 billion for that. And there's a lot of the kind of to be figured out on the main uh, report that was put out. It's a 40-page document, and I'm looking through it, and it's there's a lot of stuff that still seems a little um, vague, like circling back to the housing as a right thing. They talked about new legislation, but it's pretty uh, vague in terms of what would be in it. Just require the federal government to maintain a national housing strategy, which 
uh, I mean, okay, but all it would take to enact a parliament would to reverse that. But it doesn't actually really lay out in firm detail what the rights would be enshrined would be. I think there's a lot of places in the housing strategy where they have to work with provincial or municipal governments. And in those cases, they can't really announce anything until they've said, all right, we're going to start working on this. Now we need to build those partnerships unless they've been spending months behind closed doors, which doesn't tend to happen because one of the governments will leak it to try to get an advantage. Yeah. And that kind of brings up one of my reservations around a national housing strategy, which is why is the strategy national? Because not only is housing generally falls under the provincial jurisdictions, the situations are very different depending on where you are in the country. A, the housing issues facing Nunavut are significantly different than those in Toronto, and which are in turn different than Montreal or Edmonton. And, you know, is kind of a national program really the right way to go about it? Or would it be better to kind of tailor it more to each individual location? I think the same arguments can be made about the healthcare system, but we have a national healthcare system that guarantees some rights. Like we have a right to healthcare, but it's not enshrined in the Charter or the Human Rights Act. But we feel like we have that right. Now this, I think, is working towards that same goal. And it recognizes that the people in the Maritimes have very different health needs than than the young population in Alberta versus people in downtown Toronto versus rural Ontario versus British Columbia. And recognizing that similar approach in housing makes sense to me. I'm actually surprised Canada has never tried to get an education policy at the national level. Australia has one, despite having the same federation structure. But that's an entirely separate debate that we don't need to get into here. But I think this is a good step forward. I've seen a lot of housing advocates go, it's not bad. They're kind of happy. It's better than nothing. You have We've not had anything like this for a while, so it's hard to criticize it. Of course, it's not as ambitious as Pierre Elliott Trudeau's plans, but nothing the governments do anymore after years of austerity, neoliberalism, whatever you want to call it, have almost reduced that idea governments can do things. But here's Trudeau trying to reverse that and say, here's $40 billion over 10 years to make housing great again, as McLean's put it. <laughs> well, it's more of a couple billion now and a whole bunch of that money later, which has been the main criticism so far is that more or less all of this is coming in after the next election, which is been a fairly common theme for a lot of the Liberals' announcements. The new defense strategy, which we talked about several months ago, or maybe even longer, um, yeah, basically the same thing. And if you're planning a whole bunch of spending one or two elections away, that might be, you know, the Nets government's problem to maybe, maybe not follow through on. And as we're getting more and more of these backloaded funding announcements, I'm really starting to see the merits in having a rule where governments can only announce spending within the current mandate. I don't know about a rule like that, but I will totally agree with the criticism here. The problem with housing is we need it now, which means we needed to be building it two to five years ago. 
This is saying we're going to start building it in 2019 to 2021, which means we're going to get it by 2025. And if they're trying to permit it in Vancouver, if they start in 2021, the first shovel won't be in the ground until like 2023, 2024. I thought you were going to say 2030. Well, that, that's I'm being optimistic here. It probably will be 2030. Point being, no one's going to get these 100,000 new affordable homes anytime soon which makes this a lot of hot air that sounds good on paper, at least to many people, but is going to be frustratingly slow, if ever, to roll out. Because it's not like a government has ever gone back after an election on what they promised, let alone this one. What electoral reform. Yeah, so in addition to some of the direct money spent on building 100,000 new social housing units or the money on the 300,000 units that are getting repaired and renovated. There's also some other spending in there, such as, I believe it's $11 billion uh, to low-interest loans going to help develop below-market housing. So some of these are going to stuff where, like, if, I believe it's 20% of a development includes that the developers may be able to access this cheaper credit um so there's a few things like that and you know i have some reservations about inclusionary zoning which is kind of what this is incentivizing mostly because it does change the underlying economics of any project but you, know, you offset that with some low-cost loans i can see it kind of balancing out well, and then at the municipal level, just this afternoon, which is great for a podcast because it means we have to run through a giant report and all the coverage in about an hour so that we're sounding competent. The city of Vancouver. <laughs> See, it's, it's even worse when um, you have to work until like five and then record later in the evening. The city of Vancouver released its city housing reset next stage report. It was a larger report than the federal governments once you count in all of the appendices. Yeah, so this is the report for the round two consultations. So we talked about the round one when it first came out, and well, they've done some consultations since then, it's the next stage. Um, it's going to go to council on the 28th with public comments on the 29th. We'll throw a link up if you want to know where to sign up to speak. This is a lot meatier than the uh First one we discussed, and also more ambitious, which is good. I'm fairly critical of the first report for, well, being largely unambitious as well as getting a few things kind of wrong on the technical side. This one's better, although they're still using the missing middle to refer to mid-income housing rather than mid-density housing, which is how the term's typically used. The report is really frustrating because... A good report, I find, has an executive summary that has a breakdown of major recommendations. This sort of has that. So when you open the document, the first couple pages are the submission to council. Then you get into the report itself. And the major recommendations that first come up are just vague, like, we need more affordability. We need more density. We need more housing. And it's like, that's not helpful. But once you finally dig into the meat, you can actually get some of the specifics, which is why I think different news outlets are picking up entirely different things. Like I found stories in Global, Metro, and CBC that all cover this same report, 
in entirely different lights. Global, for example, talks about the rental czar and the changes around renters. Metro talks about density in single-family neighborhoods being permitted finally, and CBC just takes a broader look at the number of new houses that will be built under this report, if everything goes according to plan. So the overall ambition is to see 72,000 new homes in the city of Vancouver, split between 24,000 roughly new purpose-built ownership homes and 48,000 roughly rental units. So they really want to emphasize rental units to make sure that we can get away from having a 1% or less vacancy rate. Yeah, right now it's somewhere between, I believe it's 0.5 to 0.8. The report uses 0.8, but I've seen numbers a little lower than that. And yeah, the rate of purpose-built rentals has been pretty pathetic in the last couple decades, although it's recently ticked up quite a bit. And actually, they do mention they've exceeded their past rental targets. Um, so yeah, there is some stuff there that's good. So yeah, the big thing is they're significantly up in what they want to do in terms of how many units are built and putting much more emphasis on the rental units. And even going as far as to try and ask the province for rental only zoning. So, you know, given area of the city, you can only build rental buildings there, which eh, I have some reservations about but would definitely be one way to incentivize uh, rentals. They're also looking at making existing properties more renter-friendly, I guess. So any house, single-family home, would now be allowed to have six or more people live in it under by just changing the zoning laws. If you redevelop right now a unit with six or more rental suites, you have to try to make sure you keep those rental suites in that number will drop to three. So even small buildings or buildings with very few rental suites will have to keep those after redevelopment. They're also going to try some pilot programs to give a bonus to developers who just build rental units with 20% low income, and they're going to pick 20 projects over 18 months to see if they can incentivize developers to build rental units. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it'll be a flop. They're putting in this renter's protection manager who will be a staff member for the city that can just go and inform renters of their rights when talk about what to, happens if your land if your landlord comes and says your house is being redeveloped and try to provide a bit more support for tenants there and just also really put in lots of new rental units both through social and supportive housing maybe 12,000 they're hoping for and trying lots of different things, I guess. It's kind of a shotgun approach to everything. Yeah, it is. And so they're, yeah, picking a few different things and trying to move on it. And this is definitely more ambitious than the last one, but there's still a lot of areas where they could be doing more. And this feels like more of a housing tweak than a full-on reset. You know, they talk about, you know, increasing some of the density options in single-family neighborhoods and, you know, talking about up to 10,000 new units, which works out to roughly 9.8, 10% ballpark increase in density there. And, you know, if there's a real reset, you know, we'd be talking about four-story walk-up apartment buildings everywhere rather than, you know, you 
might have some more ground level oriented stuff. That's one thing that really stuck out to me in this was how much they talked about ground level oriented development in there, which just seems to be one of those things that's, well, very hard to scale in a city that already has all the land occupied by housing and we don't have greenfield sites to develop. Expropriate the housing. They're not talking about expropriating the housing. That's just a pipe dream. Yeah, although there was some talk by our uh, guests here on a recent article about possibly changing the uh, golf courses in the city to housing. But uh, yeah, for the most part, the emphasis on ground level development, laneway houses, increasing the number of duplexes, all of those things are hard to scale and fairly expensive on a kind of per unit and per square foot basis. And turning one house into two isn't really going to make things affordable when the underlying land costs are prohibitively expensive. There's also bits in there about trying to push down the demand a little bit by some of the things that have already been announced, the empty homes tax. I think they may have even mentioned the provincial government's foreign buyers restrictions, trying to take credit for some of those and just mentioning how those, I think it's worth them looking at how those will have an effect. Also the short-term rentals, the Airbnb kind of rules that they're putting in. So it is a fairly holistic approach, at least. They highlight in one point of the report, similar to this controversial Globe and Mail article that I saw go around debunking the supply myth, in quotes. Oh, that was a uh, terrible. Okay, I, I'm not even going to well, start on. They highlight in this in the report, and what that article also talked about is this sort of Statistics Canada and a couple of other numbers that we have been building as many new units as people have grown by Statistics Canada numbers. So where are they? is the question that arises. And the guess is, well, they're being shelved as security boxes in the sky. And I think that's where the anti-supply push comes really hard. And so they at least recognize that there's a some problem there. We can debate day and night all the scale of it, but putting incentives to, or disincentives, I guess, to keep a house that could be occupied, unoccupied, and also at the same time trying to open up new housing yeah seems it, like a good balance to me yeah and there is without a doubt at least some demand side issues in the housing market here the question's always been how much and so far we've all of the demand side measurements we've put in haven't really shifted things very much that when the foreign buyers tats was hastily thrown in it kind of dropped sales volumes but not prices very much and what are we uh 16 months out from it being implemented housing's more expensive than ever so yeah there's a role for that we've talked in the past with tom davidoff about how the tat structures aren't very well structured to incentivize people to use housing more effectively and how property taxes are probably lower than they should be and nothing in here i think talks about changing the tax structure at all. Uh, nothing beyond the usual MP Homes tax stuff they're talking about. So yeah, in terms of the demand side stuff, more or less what they have in there is policies they've already started to implement or have been implemented with a bit more on the, you know, work with other levels of government, other partners on it. Uh, the one thing that is in there, which I 
think is actually really good is changing some of the land use stuff and development processes that encourage speculation, clarifying the community many contributions and kind of changing how much of the stuff is done through rezoning rather than, you know, straight out zoned ahead of time. Because, you know, the way it works now, you get a lot of kind of land speculation as kind of one or two properties or like small little areas get changed. And that kind of discretionary piecemeal approach leads to a lot of kind of very localized speculation in the market. And getting rid of that, I think, would help a lot. Yeah, I saw a bit in there as well about doing some efforts to cut down the permitting delays, the unnecessary ones, and the exhaustion that many developers, I'm sure, have felt, Yeah, and which that's seems good. reasonable. Yeah, and, but as much as they lean on the rental housing here, just a simple policy of rental project goes to top of pile would be something that could be implemented quickly. None of this consider a plan to maybe eventually think about stuff where that is how a lot of these strategies or proposals are phrased. But something like that would help move things along very quickly because right now, if you had a plot of land, if you want to put up below market rental housing, you know, it'd be two years minimum before you could even just get the permitting for it. Yeah, this is getting a lot of the same kind of lukewarm, tepid enthusiasm, I guess, or excitement as the national housing strategy with a lot of the same caveats of, well, this will eventually maybe have some effect, but all the money seems down the road, which, again, Gregor's up for re-election in the fall in just under a year. And needs something to say, hey, the next 10 years will be better than the last 10 years, because that's the question they're literally putting to them. Why should we trust you going forward with this plan if the last plans didn't work? And so far, his responses have been, yeah, things went bad. Don't worry, though. So yeah, and that's kind of one of my, my major criticisms here is for a housing crisis, this stuff is taking a long time to implement the changes for and the changes that are in here are probably not ambitious enough yeah so going for stuff like more kind of slight increases in density in a lot of areas doesn't really work when you actually pencil out how much those units would realistically cost to build especially with land values and stuff some of the speculation issues surrounding uh, rezoning and development are you know, might be helpful there, but you know, if you really want to tackle that, make every residential lot in the city be able to build low to mid-rise apartment buildings, and you cut the land values of multifamily land significantly because, well, now there's a whole bunch more of it. It's not squeezed into these little spaces on arterials or downtown. The thing is, it's really easy to cut people's land value. They just don't like that, and those people vote a lot. So doing it is politically toxic. It's, I think, the same problem the provincial BC NDP are facing and why they haven't done much on housing yet because, turns out, it actually is a pretty complicated file where the easiest solutions are political poison pills and the other solutions take a long time and a lot of money, which is a poison pill of its own. And, yeah, kind of the other thing that I have issue with here is they have some, you know, nice numbers on how many houses they houses they want to build, but 
it's a little vague on both where those numbers come from. Like, why choose 72,000? And the other issue is, why are we using just raw numbers of new houses versus, say, targeting the vacancy rate and, you know, hey, let's build enough housing until, say, the rental vacancy rate is 3% consistently for five years. Like, that would be a very clear, you know, we've gone to the point where it's generally considered to have a healthy vacancy rate in the market and maintain it for an extended period. Like, that would be a very kind of clear target to shoot for. But, you know, just its number of new homes has issues where population growth and new home growth is their dependent variables. That was one of the issues with the new story of that phantom report was they kind of treat them independently. But anyway, um, I'm not sold on the metrics they're using on this one. It would seem to me much better to kind of target specific affordability and vacancy numbers rather than just raw units built, even if significantly up in the number of raw units built will help. So yeah, overall, I like this, there's some good stuff in there. And you know, it's nice to see they're actually seriously talking about changing uh, some of the zoning stuff, some, how they do development stuff. There's, you know, a need for more social housing in the city. And that's good. But you know, this would have been a great thing to do in 1980. But you know, we're couple decades late on these changes. That's the thing. It's It reminds me of how Diego Cardona ran the by-election campaign, which was kind of, yeah, we know you're upset at us. We want to do a bit more. Here's a bit more. But I don't know if it's going to be enough to alleviate the tension and the pressure and the anger that's growing against Vision's failures on the file so going into 2018 npa has its narrative they just have to run the hector bremner line he didn't get even 30 percent, but in a divided field the npa slate can run on that side and see where it goes at the citywide level the other interesting question will be what happens to all the Jean Swanson types who becomes their champion? Is she going to do a mayoral bid and try and run on the, we need to do this, but times 10 and screw the market stuff, just build the damn social housing and tax the rich to pay for it. Just some ideas are going to fly out that are all more ambitious than this, whether they're from the left or the right. And this, like you can have the ambitious centrist almost option like you do this times 10 and then you're being ambitious, but this is, well, here's some housing through a mix of everyone else's ideas, but it's not enough to really appease anyone. And so I don't know who it's inspiring, even though people generally go, yeah, it's not bad. Yeah. I, I think at this point, visions more or less going to need a miracle to pull themselves out of losing the net selection. Just, yeah, there's a lot of, discontent brewing in Vancouver about well mostly housing and this is just the second phase of the consultation you're only going to start seeing the implementation less than a year before the election in terms of the building out more housing yeah that doesn't happen quickly even if the city's permitting process wasn't incredibly screwed up and 
time-consuming and full of delays, if people could get a permits overnight, you still would have long lead times to get the housing built in here. And in terms of the demand side stuff, most of it's kind of started and more or less hasn't had much of an effect. And, you know, they're not proposing tripling the empty homes tax or anything like that, that really pushes even harder on that. So it's, I don't think we're going to see much effects within the next 11 months before the election. And at that point, yeah, I don't think there's much that's going to save them on this. And other than you know, the NPA really screwing up the campaign. Well, Envision always has the default, be scared of those other people kind of line, which I imagine they'll play. Yeah, it didn't work out so well in this past election. Well, we'll keep following the housing file because apparently it never goes away in Vancouver. And I'm sure there'll be something else in a couple weeks, even though we keep trying to look at bigger topics than municipal politics. At least we got to talk about some federal housing policy in this case. Well, let's move on to our second segment, Nostalgia to Death. Uh, We sat down with CBC's local politics reporter, Justin McElroy, to discuss TV shows and which one is the greatest Canadian TV show of all time. Well, we're sitting down with Justin McElroy of CBC Vancouver. Welcome, Justin. Hello. Um, So, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and explain why you're so intent on dividing the country? (laughs) Yeah, uh, I'm Justin McElroy. By day, I am the municipal affairs reporter for CBC Vancouver, doing stories on all the municipalities in Metro Vancouver, from uh, Lions Bay to the township of Langley and uh, everything that's happening at City Halls, both from a municipal perspective and a regional perspective when it comes to things like transportation and housing. Uh, but I also have just a silly website of my own, justinmacroy.com, where for years I've done, you know, silly articles looking at, you know, fake followers that political parties get, or what I've been doing more the last few years is arbitrarily ranking things. Uh, I ranked every single Heritage Minute a few years ago, and last year I went on a quest with friends to rate and rank all 42 breweries in Metro Vancouver, and that was fun. Uh, and uh, which, which was the best, best brewery? And the best one was Brass Neck, we decided, Brass by neck. hair over uh, um, four wins. And so uh, it was a fierce debate, and that's what came out, and that was fun. And then uh, all of a sudden, this uh, Canadian TV bracket thing came out of nowhere just a couple weeks ago, where uh, I saw people arguing on Twitter what the best, tele- most memorable Canadian television show was, and I thought, hey, we should just have a bracket on it, and then it turned into a thing where people gave their suggestions over the weekend, and just, it, it exploded. There's no other way of saying it. <laughs> well, that's great. So, you decided to do a bracket, basically, and how did you come to pick what's in that? Because I know the biggest criticism you've probably gotten is, why didn't you include this, or why did you cut that out? I watched this show in the 1980s that aired for 13 episodes, and it was really good, and how dare you? No, yeah, basically, I started, you know, I put something out on Twitter with just 16 shows, and people said, you know, the top of the top type things, and people said, it's like, what about Street Legal, right? Or what about uh, Today's Special? Or what about Polka Dot Door? Uh, or what about uh, seeing things or, you know, all these types of shows uh, f- from the past. What about Reach for the Top? And so I added all of those and then I started thinking, okay, what brackets 
could you have? And I thought at one point, okay, well, maybe 32 shows. And so, or maybe you have the midpoint of uh, like 48. And so I showed people when I had like 44 shows uh, on Twitter. And then there was like 150 responses of people saying, what about this? What about that? Uh, and so I eventually got to a point where it's like, okay, I've gotten the ones that people have asked for the most that there's been multiple requests for, and it's sort of sifted off of, okay, you're doing an NCAA-style March Madness bracket, so that means you got 64 entries, and you got four different brackets, and so, okay, well, what are we going to divide them up into? Well, obviously, like, comedy, drama, and children's are sort of the three that are easy to, um, you know, break off, and everyone has different opinions on it, and you can do stuff with. And then it's like, okay, so what's the fourth one going to be? Is it going to be like really old timey things that wouldn't necessarily compete with future, with things that are a bit more modern? Is it going to, are we going to call it, you know, non scripted things? Are we going to call it like non fiction things? And eventually uh, I just went, let's just call it miscellaneous. So all the other stuff in there, which meant you had really strange matchups like go walk with Yan against uh, Street Sense uh, or, you know, really tough ones like Heritage Minutes versus Hinterlands Who's Who. Uh, and so that's been the more, most hodgepodge one. But yeah, it's just, so I went, okay, you got those four brackets, then you figure out how to seed them one through 16 and you know i chatted with a couple friends over you know do you think this makes sense this is too high this is too low uh and i figured it out and at that point it, it's a bracket it's pretty you know it, it it is what it is and you just open up the polls each round and say let her go and you know i thought that there would be some interest you know a few hundred people or maybe a couple thousand and then it just became like the thing that dominated canada twitter for the last week and a half uh, so do you think you kind of got a really good representative cross-section of Canadian media on here? Um, like, I might be showing my millennial roots, but like a lot of these are ones I'm not very familiar with. Yeah, and it was like part of the thing was having shows that ended before 2012, right? And part of it is also just showing all of the breadth of Canadian television, which you're really talking about here, like 1965 1970 to 2010 so naturally that still said if you're trying to do a broad cross-section from there of yeah a lot of these things stopped airing you know by 2000 uh, or so so th there has uh, been that um uh, and uh, the other thing is just you know in the 70s and 80s and even to a certain extent in the 90s when sort of ytv was in its early days or what i would consider its prime being an early millennial uh <laughs> It was the case where most people, you know, you only had uh, 20 channels at most. And in the 70s or 80s, you probably only had like like five or six. And lots of people only had like the CBC and maybe, you know, CTV and Global, depending on what your rabbit ears picked up. And so therefore, Canadian shows had a much more important part of, you know, our growing up and our overall lexicon of what shows mattered. Now, you know, you start going things past 1995, it's like, yeah, there's the stuff on YTV and on CBC and CTV and Global, but there's, you know, 200 other channels with stuff and two dozen of them uh, I watch all the time and have passions of. And so it's harder in that environment for a Canadian show to really stick out in people's minds. Like one of the newer ones that was on there was Flashpoint, um, which was a pretty, you know, well-watched and well-critically received drama on CTV from 2008 to 2012. And I put it as uh, the... Uh, 
10 seed, I think, versus Danger Bay, which is the 6th seed. And I thought, okay, Danger Bay, not known as, like, the greatest show, but one that people enjoyed back then. And uh, it and uh, Danger Bay crushed Flashpoint, right? <laughs> and so part of it is, you know, uh, the fact that maybe because this is shared so much by media types and media types are, you know, tending to be, like, 30 to 50, that it is that way. And uh, part of it is that it's on Twitter and Twitter isn't a place where, you know, 20-year-olds are as much as maybe 40-year-olds. But I think the biggest thing is just the way the culture has changed, uh, it means that there's a sweet spot for Canadiana shows sort of existing from 1975 to 1995 that probably won't look all different in five, ten years' time. Though it will be interesting. I mean, if you did this in ten years' time, uh, lots of people said, you know, what about Letterkenny? Where would that show up? Or uh, what about, uh, you know, Kim's Convenience or Shit's Creek, right? So, uh, but for a moment in time, it's a fun representation. So you mentioned that you were surprised by how many people have been taking this. Just for yeah. listener, how what's the like stats? Like how many votes have anything gotten? And what were the biggest surprises? I know there have been like corner gas tweeting out yes. as an official account <laughs> to try and tilt it. Well, and so to answer your first question, so most of these, most of the polls have gotten between five and ten thousand voters, right? Uh, and it's when it's a matchup where it's a couple shows that people know really well it's up on the high end right when it's like it's the first round like the tommy hunter show versus don messer's jubilee uh two cbc variety shows uh, from you know the 60s 70s 80s and 90s the 60s 70s and 80s more uh that was on the lower end of the scale because there's less people who watch them and less people with real passionate takes about them so it goes there the biggest surprise honestly was the uh traitors bot uh, controversy where it was the first round drama three seed Degrassi versus 14 seed Traders, and you figure okay Degrassi's going to win everyone knows that Traders, good show in its own right but only lasted four years and sort of nondescript at the end of the day about investment bankers hard for people to get really emotional about investment <laughs> bankers and uh, I go to bed after day one of voting and Degrassi has 80% of the vote or so and I go well that's expected and then I wake up in the morning and Traders has the lead. And I go, huh, that's interesting. Also, the Traders versus Degrassi matchup has like 4,000 more votes than anyone else. <laughs> that's interesting too. Uh, and so at the time, I just gave them on a, you know, sort of like a very strong hunch that's, that some chicanery was there. And it's like, well, I can't prove that there's a bot, but I'm going to remove 2,500 votes here. Uh, and then I was able to do some analysis over the weekend, and I found that 6,000 votes for traders came from two IP addresses. <laughs> and it's like, that's that's pretty, that's pretty um, definitive evidence. But the fact that someone cared, <laughs> you know, they cared enough about traders to try and rig the tournament for them, but they weren't skilled enough to rig it in a way that wouldn't be obvious with an IP tracker. <laughs> Do you think it maybe was an investment banker who just is good with numbers and wanted to show that off? You know, it, I don't want to. I don't want to speculate. I know that uh, the prime Mayor, prime minister's chief secretary Gerald Butts, uh, a few hours before this uh, bot happened, <laughs> said he was sad traders was going to lose. So, <laughs> would be irresponsible to say anything more. But it's just like. But man, that someone cares about traders that much, like 18 years after it went off the air, is something. So you don't think you made a discreet call to the uh, communications securities establishment? You know, that would be a very strange 
risk to take. But I'm, you know, I'm not going to uh, preclude any actions by any individuals on their passion for traitors. Are you going to be filing any FOIs with the government <laughs> to see if the word traitors is mentioned at all? You know, it's it's I won't, but it's it's funny just looking through because you can see, you know, the IP addresses um of which ip addresses have the most votes because obviously i could see there was like four thousand from one place but you know there's a lot from government like like provincial legislatures and uh, provincial legislatures and obviously uh, media newsrooms um uh, th through this it reminds me of the people who set up the Wikipedia tracking bots for Twitter yes. that figure out which changes are made by parliamentarians yeah. or parliament, sorry, parliamentary staffers, mm -hmm. the office building. <laughs> no, and the, you know, it's the fun sort of thing this week where it's like, it appeals to someone if you have an office job, right? And there's a bit of time to kill and oh, there's this fun thing where I can arbitrarily decide which of these childhood shows from the 90s I like better. So maybe let's jump into some of the specific matchups. Was there any surprises in the first round or two? Or did it kind of go how your hunches followed? It kind of went how my hunches followed. Uh, you know, after the first two rounds, so we get to the Sweet 16, and of the 16 uh, shows left, 15 of the 16 were a top four ranked seed, which meant it went as expected. And the only one that didn't was Anna Green Gables defeating Road for Avonlea in the Lucy Laud Montgomery knockoff uh, round of 16. So in that sense, there weren't too many. I'm, try I'm trying to think of ones off the top of my head. I think, you know, I may have underestimated Reboot because Reboot did really good in the first round uh, against... Oh, what was the the show with Ryan Gosling and whose name uh, I can't uh, remember. Breaker High. Breaker High. There we go. Um, and did really great against Breaker High, and then, and then it went up against the Mister Dress Up Buzz song just died. But if I'd given <laughs> it a more protective seat, it would have been interesting to see what happened. Uh, and also people's affinity for the Red Green Show. Mm -hmm. uh just surprised me as well i thought okay well that's a show that's been off the air for a little while and may seem a little hokey <clears> to people and uh, gave it a succeed because i knew there were some that was passion but as soon as in the uh, second round matchup between that and corner gas the red green show was winning uh for most of the first day and i went hey an upset's in the making here and then the corner gas official facebook page and twitter page said <laughs> hey guys vote for this uh and then that, that lead went away and corner gas took the lead and there were a lot of angry red green fans that came out of the woodwork there to show their displeasure <laughs> i'm surprised the overlap of like red green and corner gas fans aren't larger no well i guess it's in some ways you would uh think so but i mean it's uh the, that's part of the thing through this where it's like it's hard to peg where people's nostalgia love comes from yeah mm. and i at least i remember red green got i think daily reruns at like mid-afternoon early evening yeah. on cbc and so. it was on pbs uh, for a lot of time if you lived in the northern u.s as well so there was something per pervasive about that you know the person who wrote an endorsement uh, of it, Jack Howen, the editor of the UBC student newspaper, said it's like, yeah, he distinctly remembers whenever he was sick, you would watch Red Green and it was comfort food to see he'd, you know, Ranger Gord and Red and everyone else and Harold just act like idiots and you laugh <laughs> at it. And uh, because also it was in like five to seven minute segments as well, I think that's part of the reason why it was easy nostalgia because you could just sort of remember one little bit and laugh. And if the next one's boring, you can go, okay, I'm going to ignore that one. 
Well, and then going into the later rounds, what did you find? Because we're in the semifinals right now, and we have we're you know a couple hours before the voting closes yeah. in the semifinals. So, Mister Dressup versus Heritage Minutes in one semifinal. Kids in the Hall versus Degrassi in the other semifinal. And yeah, it's getting. It was most tense, I think, in the Elite Eight because the Elite Eight was the finals for each of the brackets. So mm-hmm. we were declaring the best drama ever, Littlest Hobo <laughs> versus Degrassi, the best comedy ever, SCTV versus Kids in the Hall, the best children's show ever, Mr. Dressup versus the Friendly Giant. Like, those are big stakes and there's ones where it's like it's clear comparisons show to show of differences right so people got very passionate and very you know i don't even want to say faux angry maybe some people were truly (laughs) angry that one was going down i know i was devastated that friendly giant was losing so badly to mr dress up but it, it was the type where it's like you have deeply held convictions of what's the best in a certain genre in your head and i think once it goes beyond certain genres your brain is harder to compare, right? Um, you say, what's your favorite movie of all time? That's a weirder question than what's your favorite comedy or drama or science fiction thing, right? So now that we're into the final form, the final, uh, you know, for the sake of this arbitrary contest we're running, these it's a very important question. But in people's minds, maybe there's less stakes of just mm-hmm. going, yeah, uh, Degrassi versus kiss in the hall well i sort of like both i hadn't thought about it but uh, okay and, and for a lot of people they're putting down kids in the hall because it is romping away to a victory and so think, is mr jessup yeah do you think that intensity is going to ramp back up for the uh final showdown i don't know i mean i hope so certainly it's uh the type of thing where people have been saying the last couple days oh i can see it's going to be mr dressup versus kids in the hall and i don't know what i'm going to do can i vote against my childhood like mr dressup has been in some ways protected thus far because it's just going up against children's shows uh and uh, then in this final four it's going up against heritage minutes which is not a show right it's just uh, it's delightful but it's a different thing and so people haven't really had to weigh the thousands of dress-up lovers so far that childhood memory and warmth versus what they've enjoyed as a teenager or an adult and try and appropriately trade them off and so it's caused some twitter angst and we'll see how many people yell at me on the internet in the next couple days so the final round of voting takes place when just for final round friday saturday sunday and we're going to, you know, close the results during that time. So you'll vote, but you won't be able to see which one is winning. So we can do uh, the dramatic reveal uh, on a couple CBC platforms on Monday. Because we're <laughs> going to transfer over interest from, you know, my silly personal blog to, to the Mother Corp then. And uh, we'll see what happens. We've got uh, uh, the John Semley, who was the writer of the Kids in the Hall, Defendant Kids in the Hall book that came out last year. He wrote a 300 word little endorsement for kids in the hall for this final round and mr dress up will just put memories that people had of mr dress up in for there to remind people and uh, yeah it's it's hard to say who will win right because they come from two very different parts uh, of your mind mr dress up's very broad kids in the halls comes from a very specific type of comedy well and these are both cbc shows correct Yes, very coincidental. <laughs> I mean, it's possible that uh, you, you, I saw a lot of voters from 
CTV and and global newspapers and other places. And it's, you know, I've said to people that because it's just on my site as opposed to a CBC branded thing, it makes it so other media types can jump in and feel they can have more fun. Uh, you know, Rob Shaw, the Vancouver Sun said, yeah, don't ruin Exeston <laughs> by putting it on CBC. So uh, it's also just one of the things that, you know, CBC being the public broadcaster has been able to invest in original programming much more over the last 50 years than and other ones. But I did enjoy, you know, the comedy matchup. We had one from CBC in Kids in the Hall. We had SCTV, which was primarily on Global. We had Corner Gas, which was CTV. And we had uh, uh, Trailer Park Boys, which was Showcase. So a nice uh, nice mix there. Uh, so I want to circle back to the um, Heritage Minutes for a moment. You mentioned yeah. at the start that you had ranked them. I have. What is the best Heritage Minute and why? The best Heritage Minute, as I decided in a week-long fever dream of watching <laughs> all of these multiple times, is the Jacques Cartier one, where he comes to Canada. And part of that is because of the symbolism of I wanted the one of why Canada was named number one. But uh, when I was actually just counting up the scores... Uh, originally, you know, I ranked all of them out of 20, and there were two 10-point marks. One for how much did it feel like a Heritage Minute, you know, was there dramatic music or clunky exposition and uh, funny co costumes and uh, a certain over-the-topness out of it and stilted dialogue. And the other 10 points were what was that thing celebrating and how sort of adorably Canadian was it, you know, Heritage Minutes. And I think part of the reason why we love them is because they were like, did you know we created Superman, sort of? Or did you know that the bear for Winnie the Pooh was in Winnipeg for a little while? They're um, all very... It's our thing, sort of. Yes, well, <laughs> it's, our, it's our thing, sort of. And it's not like we invented insulin or something, you know, important. A lot of them, yeah. right? And so this one where... Uh, you know, Jacques Cartier and his group see the indigenous people. It's like first contact. It's very dramatic. And it's like, what uh, do you call this uh, area? And uh, the indigenous leader points to village and says, uh, you know, Canadacon. And uh, Jacques Cartier goes, Canada. And, uh, and this guy says, uh, no, I think he just means the village. And uh, he goes, no, no, no. I he said Canada, and that is, is its name. And the idea that it's like our entire country was just named because of a wacky misunderstanding. Aha. Uh -huh. uh, and it doesn't, you know, go into any of the more problematic aspects of that first contact and the beginning of, you know, centuries worth of appropriation and everything else um, was just sort of hit that delightful heritage sweet spot for me um that it was number one there were a couple really close to that is like number two was the sam Steele one with the rcmp uh constable that tells the american not to shoot because that was hilarious and like a lot a lot are up there right and it's like you could probably make a case for seven or eight of the like 79 original minutes or whatever it is being at the very top but that one i enjoyed just a little bit more one of the questions we got from Twitter about the bracket mm -hmm. is, did you artificially inflate Degrassi by combining multiple shows into one? Ooh, and I mean, <laughs> I you could argue, yes. I guess part of uh, my thing, because I didn't do that, obviously, for Anna Green Gables versus Rotap and Lake. Um, 
But my thinking was whenever my friends would talk about Degrassi, just it would always, the way they would divide it was old Degrassi and new Degrassi, right? The one, the kids of Degrassi, Degrassi Junior High, Degrassi High, were all sort of conflated as one when people would talk about it and share their stories, as opposed to the new one that started in like 2000. So I figured, okay, we'll just make that, if I try and divide it up anymore, that, that's weird, and uh, like people's memories there are too hazy, whereas Anna Green Gables was clearly a miniseries in the 80s, and Road to Avonlea was clearly like a dramatic show uh, in the 90s, so I thought, th that's fair, that's the way to people, I think, remember them, but you could make the, I, I say to people sometimes, you could make the argument otherwise, you could create your own thing and try it, but it was just, that made most sense to me. I guess the only other final question I have is: there going to be a bronze medal match between Heritage Minute and Degrassi? Then, yep. No, I'm gonna I'm gonna put that up on the uh, posting. Just uh, you know, there doesn't need to be an argument per se where I you know bleed on for two or three hundred words about it. <laughs> but it's important. It's important to have a third place finisher if you're doing th this sort of definitive uh, ranking. You need a bronze medalist, and it'll be. And I think I think Degrassi will take it just because people do have very strong feelings. Uh, you know. Uh, Melissa Martin, the uh, Winnipeg Free Press columnist, and she won a National Newspaper Award this year for Best Columnist in Canada, did like a 12-minute YouTube video talking about why it was the best and deserved to, to go in. So uh, I know that there are a lot of fans there, uh, and uh, we'll have to see what gets in the third place. Well, maybe let's just finish off with a little bit more about your current role at CBC. You mentioned you're the local politics reporter how did that come about because that seems like the kind of thing that most media companies are firing yeah. and getting rid of unfortunately which is well not not firing but... per se it's just you know it's uh, people retire or move on and uh, they aren't necessarily replaced a lot of time right and this is the sort of you know beats are becoming less and less common in traditional media and we see that uh, all the time as you have to do more and more and uh, young reporters are general assignment people and i was a general assignment person for a long time they just happened to do elections and other stuff on the side but uh, it's the sort of thing where you know cbc we still have the resources to do things like this and this is the sort of public interest journalism where look a lot of times it might not necessarily get the same amount of clicks that uh, you will do if you're in more general assignment and crime and human interest type stuff. But it's important and there's a large passion for it online. So we decided, or I should say the company decided in all of its wisdom uh, uh, six months or so ago that they were going to invest in this and uh, have the position and, uh, you know, the response. When it was announced, the response online was uh, was huge. Uh, and I said, it's like, people aren't, you know, retweeting and favoring this again and again, because they like me far from it. They're doing it because they like the concept of having this uh, position. And hopefully, you know, I'm adding, we have a lot of good uh, municipal reporters in this city from Francis Bula to Jen St. Denis to Dan Fumano to uh, Mike Howell to many, I could, you know, be talking for another 25, 30 seconds, but there are a whole lot of them. And uh, it's been a thrill to start getting to work with them over the last few months. Has anything kind of really emerged as something that has uh, been like a major thread throughout your municipal work? Oh, I like housing, 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 right? <laughs> like that's, it's uh, the thing that uh, it, it, there are the never-ending debates of. And uh, part of the fascinating thing, of course, is 
you know, if you can have this debate in Toronto or Edmonton or Calgary or Montreal, you're talking about just one city and uh, one municipal government that controls the levers everywhere of what to do within the place that they live in. You know, we say Vancouver, but when we say Vancouver, we're really talking about Vancouver and Burnaby and Surrey and Richmond and 15 other municipalities. And that makes it uh, difficult from a regional perspective to come up with one strategy where everyone's on the same page. But it makes it so that there's a lot of interesting stories all around because different governments have different solutions um, uh, in their own mind and you have different conflicts come up. Do you have any predictions for the 2018 municipal elections? Oh, not. <laughs> uh, I covered the BC election, and uh, no one would have predicted what happened <laughs> there and, and the two months of craziness we went through. But it's going to be interesting to see over the next few months. There's a lot of longtime mayors in uh, Metro Vancouver that have been in their position for around a decade or more. You know, everyone on the North Shore, uh, the mayor of uh, Port Coquitlam, the mayor of Coquitlam, uh, the mayor of Richmond, the mayor of uh, Burnaby, and it's just always a question of, A, will all of them run? Some of them have already said they will, such as Derek Corgan, some, and Malcolm Brody in Richmond. Some are still holding off, so that's going to be a question. And then just, you always wonder, will there be a changing of the guard in any various city, or is it going to be status quo? Because the thing with municipal governments is they tend to stay a lot more stable over time, uh, but all it takes is one person not running or one a scandal, and things can change in a blink of an eye. Uh, well, is there any story or issue that has more or less escaped uh, widespread public notice that you think is really important and should get more attention? Oh, that's a, I like there's a, there's a lot there's lots of issues. I mean, I think I would uh, would have to uh, go into more. I mean, I think education is one where. Because of decreased resources for community newspapers, um, uh, there are school boards everywhere, and there are interesting stories in how they're trying to balance uh, their budgets and uh, what sort of services they're providing and what sort of services they're cutting and how they deal with population growth here and decline there. And uh, just because, you know... As far back as three or four years ago, you would still have two community newspapers in every city, and you could ensure that there would be one person at every council meeting and every school board meeting. Uh, and now that's not always a guarantee. And uh, I do wonder what we're missing out of that and uh, what the repercussions are for citizens. Well, is there anything else you wanted to get in on the air before we let you go? Uh, I don't think so. Other than, you know, I've, I think it's been really fun to see all the reaction on Twitter over the last week and a half or so. And I think part of that is because it's a thing people can argue about, but can argue about with low stakes. Um, uh, you know, somebody said to me in the newsroom that it reminds them of what Twitter was like three or four years ago. Uh, and it's important, it's important that people be passionate about the things they care about. And there are real important issues out there that deserve... Uh, you know, people to go to high dungeon to fight for what they want. But sometimes it's nice to just uh, have a Mr. Dress-Up versus Friendly Giant spirited debate for days on end because it's something everyone can partake in and they don't have to feel that, uh, you know, they could get into hot water or start a flame war with anything that they're saying. Well, if people listen to this in time, where can they find 
the, your website to vote, where can they find you on Twitter? They can find uh, the final vote at justinmacroy.com. That's M-C-E-L-R-O-Y.com. And my Twitter address is uh, J underscore McElroy, same spelling. And uh, if people check the hashtag Canadian TV bracket, they'll find it there. And uh, happy voting. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Well, and for our quick takes this week, first up, the federal liberals have announced that they're flip-flopping and are now going to support NDP MP Romeo Saganash's private member's bill that the federal government adopt the United Nations of on the Declaration of Indigenous People into Canadian law. The liberals had previously criticized this bill as vague and unworkable with our current law. The bill itself is basically six parts that says, hey, that undrips this great thing that every other country in the world is basically on board with. We should bring it into Canadian laws. It shouldn't undermine Section 35 of the Charter, which you don't have to say that this law isn't undermining the Charter, but it's nice to just be explicit, I guess. And it emphasizes that the government basically needs to create an action plan to adopt all of the principles of UNDRIP and that it is now a universal international human rights instrument with application in Canadian law, which I assume would mean that cases like the Tunaha ruling, which happened recently at the Supreme Court of Canada, would now have to actually look at UNDRIP, which in that ruling it didn't, despite mentioning a few other international precedents. There would then be annual reports to Parliament about how well they're doing on implementing UNDRIP. It's somewhat rare for a federal government to adopt a private member's bill, especially from the opposition. It happens from time to time, and I think this might be Trudeau trying to cover his ass after pretty much shitting the bed on the missing murder Indigenous women and girls inquiry that is still ongoing, but I think saw a couple more resignations or firings in the last couple weeks. They're up to seven or eight people have quit or been fired from that inquiry, which is not a good sign when they're only four or five months in, I think. And on a couple other files, they're struggling with Indigenous people, despite having committed in their campaign to adopt all the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's recommendations, one of which is to adopt UNDRIP. So this feels like a face-saving move, I guess. Yes, basically, the read on the politics side can see on this one. Yeah, and then, yeah, the only other thing is that, you know, I don't think it was just the Liberals that raised the concern about incorporating it into Canadian law, so I'm a little curious on how that's going to work, but, you know, I have nowhere near the legal expertise or the familiarity with the declaration to really dive into it. One of the things people have pointed out is if Trudeau is saying this now, does that mean he's going to reverse tact on like the Kinder Morgan pipeline and some of the other projects he's adopted and pushed or supported now in light of opposition from local indigenous people who are not providing their quote free prior and informed consent? It gets complicated because section 35 of the charter is this duty con to consult, which is not a veto explicitly according to the Supreme Court of Canada. I don't know who's right on this. It's going to be fun to watch the Supreme Court and other courts hash this out. 
but other countries are working through these things and the UN declarations that are adopted by every country but Canada are kind of embarrassing. So I think we can struggle our way through this and hopefully start to move forward a little bit more on reconciliation. Also coming out of Ottawa this week, the Liberals are starting to look at changing up the way debates are done during election campaigns. Specifically, they're looking at formalizing the debates uh, and kind of setting up a commission to look at who would participate, the rules, and all of those sorts of things. Up until this last year, there was basically a media consortium Global, CBC, CTV, and maybe CPAC or other TV stations all got together and said, here's how we're going to do leaders' debates. And it became a little bit of a problem in 2008 because Elizabeth May was like, I should be there. We have a MP that just switched over to our party. And everyone was like, no, we don't really want you there, at least of the major party leaders. And then a lot of Canadians were like, Oh, but they're the Greens. You may as well have them up there. What's the worst that happens? And so she got in in that after some outrage. Then in this past election, Harper had said, I'm only going to do one debate, or he wasn't going to do any debates. And then Mulcair was like, well, if Harper's not doing a debate, I'm not doing a debate. And the whole thing fell apart. And we eventually got some debates. But I believe it was five in total. Which yeah. <laughs> it became a mess because the media versus the politicians. And one of the Liberals' pledges was, we're not going to have this mess ever again. We're going to set up an independent commission and it will deal with this and somehow. And so what they've basically done today or in this past week is assign it to the House of Commons Procedures Committee, PROC as it's commonly known, and I'm sure boys in short pants can go into all of the nitty-gritty details of PROC. I'm sure they have in the past. And this committee of MPs is now trying to figure out how do we do this? How do we create a commission? What should its terms be? Should the MPs set the rules for the debate and then let the commission oversee them? Or should just pass it off to the commission and not have to deal with the controversy anymore? Because you have so many questions like who should get into the debates? What happens if someone doesn't want to be in the debate? Should we find the political parties, just like parties find leadership candidates who don't show up? So when Kevin O'Leary skipped a conservative leadership debate, he had to pay $10,000. Hey, that's just a you know half day of work for him. Oh, but it did have to come out of his campaign money, which is much more restricted, and he couldn't just pay it all out of pocket. So you have those kind of questions, and MPs probably don't want to take the political bullet over that because... There's no upside. So the temptation is to just dump it all on a commissioner and just providing there's some checks and balances on that. But this is the stuff they're struggling with. There's a really good discussion on this week's episode of the Pollcast with Eric Grenier, where he talks to Aaron Weary, who wrote up an analysis piece, and we'll throw links in the show notes to all of that, if this is the kind of thing you really want to dive into. What I think is the interesting angle here is after Trudeau faced so much flack after the Electoral Reform Commission exploded or came up with an answer he didn't like, this is potentially another political firecracker. It doesn't seem yet like the political parties all have a different 
or any p strong positions or feelings about this other than they probably don't want to get in controversy over it. Well, the, the Greens have strong feelings on it. Oh, yeah. The Greens want to be in. The, the Greens have a structure that says there should be, you have to meet two of three criteria. Like you have to either have an MP sitting, you have to get over 4% in an election, or you have to run candidates in 70% of the seats. Well, just most, I think, which was vague and needs to be clarified. And they, of course, got 4% in the last number of elections. They don't say 5% because there was one election that the block didn't get 5%, I think this last one, nationally. And it seems wrong to cut the block out of the French debate. These are the kinds of questions this has to deal with. And so it gets very wonky and very technical. But also, if you set it wrong, you feel like you're stimming democracy because TV debates, even though it's 2017 and an increasing number of people don't have cable or television, still feel like an important thing. They usually are streamed. So maybe that's also the answer is like making sure they're on the internet. But it will be something to watch because this has, I think, a lot of potential to explode. Yeah, especially as we're more than halfway through the mandate. So people are starting to think more and more about the next election. And depending on how long this takes to set up, we could be at the point in which less than a year to go. And at that point, it's going to probably get pretty heated. And likely there would be accusations of trying to rig the system. And stuff. It's might get messy depending on how long it takes. Well, and speaking of messy discussions, today the Attorney General of BC, David Eby, launched the official electoral reform consultation that is going to inform the referendum that we're going to have next fall. They've put up a engagement survey with either 12 questions or 24, depending how nerdy you are that range from just how closely do you follow politics to things like what PR options should specifically be on a electoral reform ballot if we have more than one. And they have wonky write-ups of electoral reform systems, including one I hadn't even really heard of or thought of, multi-member majoritarian, or the parallel system, essentially, the multi-member majoritarian, which is essentially... You have first past the post, but then you have top-up proportional seats. So it's a weird hybrid of mixed-member proportional and first past the post and PR that I think appeases no one. I did not want that on my ballot. Anyway, I found this survey to be a lot more meaningful and wonky, to be honest, than the my democracy, what kind of voter are you that we criticized heavily the Trudeau liberals for launching last year. Didn't come up as Hufflepuff this time? No, I didn't get a result, which it was actually kind of disappointing. But I did get to give a lot of thoughts. I found it relatively balanced. It tried to say, what are the priorities you have? Do you want to elect stable majority governments? Or do you want governments that are formed of small parties? Do you want to have more parties with fewer seats or fewer parties that have more seats. There was one question that said, should the number of MLAs remain the same or should there be more MLAs or just no preference? 
and there was no option, interestingly, for fewer MLAs. BC doesn't have a ton, but... Unsurprisingly, the MLAs right in this want to keep their job. Yeah. So there's all kinds of things. You can do either just the first half, which is the less wonky details, and in the second half you get into very specific, like, here's the kinds of systems that I like, here's the kind of things I want to see. A lot of the specifics of the systems that I saw some people on Twitter wanting to see, like, where's my thresholds and percentage breakdowns? I'm like, this is the first consultation. But of you, course, you mean they didn't get into the details of hair versus droop uh, thresholds in STV? Well, there were comment fields at the end, but I think you are limited to a thousand characters on both of those. Although they also will be taking written submissions from campaign groups and Stuart Preston on Twitter, who I was making fun of earlier, or everyone was making fun of in a thread. So overall, I thought it was pretty decent, but it is a pretty nerdy survey. Whether it excites the vast majority, like there were questions in there about which I thought were actually pretty important, like should the government provide impartial information during a referendum? Should the government fund yes and no campaigns? What should the rules be around those? Those kind of questions. So it wasn't all just about the electoral reform itself. So I think it shows that they don't know where they're starting from. And this survey is going to run until February 28th, at which point the attorney general and his staff will then have to write up the results, which puts us into March. And then they have to get ready for a referendum later that year with supporting legislation. So it's very open-ended at this point, as far as I can tell from this survey. Like All they know about their referendum is it's going to be 50% plus one. And then we're deciding everything else now. So on the one hand, I'm very pleased to see something that I can wonk out about. But I'm also a bit like, how are they going to make this happen if they're at this stage? But we'll throw a link to that survey in the show notes so you can all read up all of the different models they have. There's actually a lot of information on there already, and they plan to put a lot more up there. And you can also take the survey when you want. Well, moving on, uh, during a visit to the BC legislature this past week, the governor of Washington, Jay Inslee, basically proposed or at least strongly supported a high-speed rail link between Vancouver and Washington State. So this is actually the first time a Washington governor has actually addressed the BC legislature since I think it's 84. But yeah, uh, used the opportunity to express his interest in such a project. There's apparently going to be a feasibility study coming out fairly soon. And yes, looking like, it, you know, there's support on both sides of the border for this one. It's, I mean, there's a lot of unanswered questions, but yeah, could be something to watch. It sounds like something that's been in Inslee's mind for a while, given that there's a $1 million feasibility study underway and expecting results soon. There's not a lot of costs for BC, considering we only have the first 25 kilometers of track and one of the terminals. Some of the initial things Horgan was raising, because this was a joint press conference that they announced or talked about this at, was just the questions about border security and just making sure that 
it's streamlined enough that it's not a hassle because otherwise it just still makes more sense to drive or fly, I guess. But this would give you the chance to take the train from Vancouver to Bellingham to Seattle and on to Portland in far less than the seven, eight hours that that would take to drive. Yeah, and this is one of those areas that would actually work out fairly well. High-speed rail tends to be kind of the most economical, make the most sense, and kind of the 600 to 1,200 kilometer ranges. Much more than that, flying starts to become more economical, and, well, below that, you might as well drive. Um, so, yeah, the high-speed rail line through... Washington connecting kind of Portland to Vancouver. Yeah, actually it's one of those distances that makes a fair bit of sense. Unless they can build the Hyperloop first. Yeah, well, not holding a breath on that one. Um, so yeah, it, it could be interesting. Like we said, there's a few issues to sort out. The border, um, it would require a fair bit of new track to be laid. You can't use all some of the existing parts. It would need to be significantly upgraded or more likely rerouted and this isn't the first look at it the um washington um department of transport has i believe done studies in the past on it so it, it is something that might be happening it's been talked about for a while and it's basically the one route out of vancouver that would ever make sense for high-speed rail i mean the only other place that kind of falls within that circle that makes sense is calgary but the mountains become an issue there, and it would be a lot of viaducts and tunnels to make high-speed rail work. Well, I look forward to my hipster train to hipster Portland. Finally, looking forward to 2018, George Affleck, one of the most prominent Vancouver City councillors from the NPA, has announced that he's not going to be seeking re-election next year. This is going to be his last year on city council after, I think, two terms. He cites his young family and personal business that needs some TLC as reasons for not wanting to run. But I think there's also speculation that the internal politics of the NPA may be shifting towards more the Hector Bremner than some of the wealthy nimbyism perhaps that's been in their past there, there does seem to be a bit of a shift that happening in the mta and george affleck was less on the kind of yimby side for lack of a better term of the mpa so you know might be a bit of internal politics shakeup but you know it could also just be it was you know time for a change and 2018's shaping up to looked like a fairly decent year for the NPA, so I could see the in incentives to stick around uh, if you're an NPA politician, especially one with a fairly high profile like uh, Affleck. So it's probably actually what it sounds like, one to spend more time with the family and his other work. He does also highlight that it's going to be a more open and interesting leadership contest to see who's the mayoral candidate for NPA. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see who steps forward for that. Besides Wei Young, the conservative CPC Jesus, former MP, who I don't know anyone who's rooting for right now. And that has been Plicos. Find links to the stories you mentioned in the show notes at plicos.ca. 
make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Pod. Leave us a review and let us know what you think. Support the show and get early access to our interviews at patreon.com slash And if you have ideas for the show, feel free to send them to us. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.